Hello, wonderful humans. Welcome to the TFC Audio Project. Today it is April 16th, 2021, and I'm here with Jay Nira. And today we're going to review a post from uh, earlier this week that garnered a lot of comments. And we thought it would be a good opportunity to maybe present some expanded perspectives and to address um, some assumptions that people were making in the comments that I think are, are good opportunities to kind of clear the air. So, Jay, thanks for uh, giving us some of your time this morning for the conversation. Always a treat. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always a treat to be here. No worries. So um, the post was made on TFC's Instagram account on April 13th. And to give some context, I'm just going to start by reading the post um, just real quick. So the graphic said, how much of life are you prepared to forego to stay safe? So that was what was written in the post. And then the caption, I'll go through it quickly. With another lockdown now in effect in Ontario, despite unequivocal data that shows they're ineffective and harmful. That was in brackets, and I'll address that when we chat about it. Uh, it's time to post this again. So this post was actually made before. Um, I didn't think I would have to post it again, but obviously um, things have continued the way that they've been going. So it says, ask questions, stick together, and help our leaders recognize the consequences of their ill-informed decisions. Safety is a funny thing. Our desire for safety stems from a fear of the unknown and sometimes even the fear of death. You can stay in your home and never leave and you'll probably be safe. But is that increase in safety worth never seeing your friends in person, never hugging another human or never playing outside or seeing nature? Is the fear of danger coming at the expense of living life? Should we each uh, be free to make that decision? Do I think it's worth taking precautions to protect my 90 year old grandfather from COVID? Yeah, I think that would be a wise choice. Do I think that protecting him at the cost of closing businesses, not letting kids play in parks and creating mass suffering is a good decision? Hell no. Do I think that's even a choice we need to make? A choice based on rational assumptions? Also no. Those choices are being made for us all right now. Choices based on flawed logic and unfounded assumptions. Are you accepting those choices or are you questioning them? I'm questioning them and if more people stood up and asked questions, we would change things in a big way. Time to reunite Team Human and we all have a part to play. So that was the caption. There were 1,670 likes, 271 comments when I checked this morning. And... Yeah, so that is sort of the basis of why we got together today. Um, and we can break down and dive into, talk about some of the comments and just talk about points related to that post. So, I mean, first impressions of that? I, I think first I'd kind of want to preface the whole conversation. Like in that we heard, like you wrote, fear of the unknown and mm -hmm. the importance of asking questions. Uh, my take on this whole thing has always been that we have to push conversations. Yes, right. I we agree. have to we have to exchange information. We have to push conversations in an earnest way with each other, like honesty. Yeah, truthful. and good and in good faith too. Like go in with <clears throat> a like we none of us know what the fuck is going on right now. I think even the people making rules, they they won't say that, but like it's very confusing because there's so much stuff to process. There is such an overload of information that human brains aren't prepared to to kind of take in and we all have to work together to collaboratively make sense of the world. We all have to get equal footing on like, what are the rules of the game of making sense of the world? How do we play this game with an honest and, and good faith intent? And how do we help each other figure this shit out? Right. Um, yeah. And I think in that, like there's kind of two things that I, I find very valuable or I'm learning to find very valuable. And one of them is we often look at other people. I, I get very frustrated and I'm sure you get frustrated as, as well with people because you do all your due diligence. You do lots of research, you look things up and then you try to have conversations with people and it just seems like they're not putting in the same kind of effort and almost like they're 
ignoring the things that you're saying. I don't even know that they know that effort is possible. You know, like I think I, I disagree with my mom the most out of anyone I know. And I know she gets her data, let's call it, um, from watching the news. And she takes at face value that what she's hearing is actually true. And I love my mom and her whole life. That's She's probably gone based on that assumption. So it's really uncomfortable when I tell her that that source of news is probably is actually the easiest way to be misinformed. It's, it's not the only thing you should be looking at to have a good perspective. And I think that that... You know, she doesn't know that you can literally spend hours researching like deep sources of information that maybe don't have the same bias as uh, centralized news that's influenced by politics and corporate, you know, entities. And like that's uncomfortable for her to realize. And I think it is for a lot of people. And I don't know if a lot of people have the ability to like objectively research information nor the bandwidth to do so. So I think those are like variables to unpack in there. But I agree, if you're not coming at this with an equal effort level, then it's it's a really frustrating thing to have a conversation with someone who has put no background effort into expanding their understanding. Yeah, I've I've come to a point where I've decided to just stop engaging with ignorant people completely. Stop yeah. engaging. Protect your energy. And one thing I've noticed is we don't have the majority of us don't have a distinction between two very important concepts, which, which are nescience and ignorance. Have you ever heard of the term nescience? I haven't. It's, it's, it's a word that kind of disappeared from our language. Okay. Uh, nescience is very similar to ignorance, uh, but it is the absence of knowledge. So it's, it's to not know, but it is the absence of knowledge. Like the etymology would be like the N-E, the ne, is like the not, the negative, like the, the less of. Mm-hmm. And then science, like science, uh, CRA or CR. Anyway, I forget the etymology <laughs> for science, but science is to know. Okay. Right. So it's to not know. Ooh, I like that. And ig- ignorance is also to not know, except we have to remember that ignorare or to ignore is to not acknowledge, to reject, to refuse. Mm. So ignorance is to not know, but it's because you're not acknowledging information Whereas nescience is the absence of information. The person has not been exposed to information. Ah, So when we think of like responsibility or accountability more precisely, Mm -hmm. you're not accountable for the information that you were never exposed to. Right. But as far as ignorance goes, you are accountable for the information that you were exposed to. So when I'm having a conversation with someone, the second I realize that there's just no getting past their ignorance, I just, okay. Nod your head and say, okay. So you'll have a conversation with someone who is nescient, who has not yet come across the information, so they can't possibly know it. Um, but you won't engage with someone who's ignorant, who is choosing not to engage with new information. Yes. Like I, That's I choose, beautiful. I choose to assume that the person is nescient. Right. Right. I give them the benefit of the doubt, yes. just like I would want them to give me the benefit of the doubt. And at the same time, we can be ignorant at times as well, as sure. well with our own confirmation bias, not realizing it. Yep. But being aware of this concept now, you can be conscious to try to be more nescient or to have a the approach that the other person has their opinion because they know something that you don't know, mm. right? That, and that's the most important thing Yeah, is why does this person have an opinion that is different than mine? I know I've done a lot of research. Let's see what they have to say. And I'm going to talk to them until I realize 
or I'm going to try and figure out that either they are nescient and we can continue to have a conversation Mm -hmm. or if they are very ignorant and they have no information that I can grasp from, then I'm just going to cut the conversation off. Right. And I think that that is one of the most important things. And I've also found that different differentiating between low information and high information people has been a very big thing. Um, because you, a person who a person can be have a no opinion or a wrong opinion about something because they're low information, mm-hmm. but they could still be nescient about it. Right. Right. So when you say low information, what do you mean? Like a low information, uh, that person has a low quantity of information available. Yeah. Okay. Like, like there's low information decision makers and high information decision makers. Right. I would consider you and I to both be high information decision makers. We like to do lots of research before we decide on anything. Yes. Whereas some people, um, they just don't need a lot of information. They see something on the news and then they're good for it. Right. Mm. So when we're trying to differentiate between low and low information and high information is kind of seeing what can I learn from a person or what can I share with this person? And a person can be ignorant, but very high information and you can still grasp something from them. Yes. Like you could could be talking to a doctor who's all of their information that they're getting on a topic is fed from the mainstream media. They don't want to hear anything about all alternative medicines or how Mm -hmm. lockdowns aren't working or anything like that. They don't want to hear any of that. They're ignorant to anything that doesn't confirm their position, their their current position on X topic. But the bottom line is it's still a doctor. Mm -hmm. They still have eight years or so of (laughs) foundational like knowledge. So whether that's relevant or not to their profession is another story, but yeah, but, but some of it, some of it, there is certainly some knowledge there. They, for sure. They've definitely read a lot of studies that you might not have read. Mm -hmm. Right. And they are around a lot of other doctors, which have their opinions. And some of those doctors might be well-informed as well. Uh, I would defer to thinking that the majority of what we see is consensus these days. It's yep. not critically, critically thought out opinions. It's more consensus expertise. But uh, I also think there's a really big value with looking at things through a lens of probabilities. Like I've started to do this now where it's not like I'm not deciding on something and then that's it. It's like the probability of this is based on the pool of information I currently have. The goal is to constantly expand the pool of information to bring my probability into into better accuracy and so it's like a continuum where it's like and you meet people that have just decided like there is at no nothing will change their mind when you when i engage with that kind of person i instantly when i get a feeling that that's the case it's just like i'm done there is zero point it's not i don't do an exercise in trying to change people's minds who are not willing to change their minds like it's just it's the most frustrating thing ever it's like you're smashing your head against the wall why would you continue and I think it's helpful to look at things through the lens of probability and admitting that there's no, like, I'm not certain about anything, but I have a really high probability on some things. And I think that that mindset um, is important, I think, because it makes you always flexible to um, having those probabilities change based on new information. Right. I call it, I call it possibilities and probabilities. Okay. Because the first thing you say is, well, is it possible? And even if in the slightest way it's right. possible, okay, it's yeah. like, you know what? It is possible. Yep. But is it probable? Right. Right. Because, yeah, it's possible, but it's improbable. Right. And this is possible and more probable. Right. So I, I kind of like to put those two together. First mm-hmm. thing we always say is, is it possible? And what right. what needs to be put in place for it to be possible? And then right. we can start thinking about probabilities. Um, so 
Anyway, the differentiation between nescience and ignorance, and then the differentiation between low information and high information kind of helps us decide whether we should even participate in conversations. Can we extract information? Can this person extract information from us? Right. And are we hitting a roadblock? Because if there's a roadblock, then let's just stop the conversation and save everyone's energy, smile and walk away before we end up hating each other. Right. Right. And, and, and so that, so that's, been a big savior for me over this because I get so many messages and it's just like uh block. Yep. Like someone writes a comment on my on my page and they just go to insults. It's like uh eh, block. I'm not yeah, gonna for both it. your benefit. Clearly yeah. that person is just spewing sh- negative energy and you're get- receiving it. So like blocking it is a mutually beneficial thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then sorry, the other thing that I wanted. So the reason I just wanted to talk about all the this like the uh the nescience and the ignorance and then I'm going to bring up one other thing is because I feel like we're, we're standing at a precipice right now. Like we are standing at a precipice. We've been slowly moving closer and closer to the edge, like for this whole year. And we're going to get pushed off soon. This mm. preface, this preface, precipice. Pre- <laughs> I cliff. Like, I know what you the mean. Cliff. I don't know why I like the word precipice, but cliff. <laughs> I like it too. Right. But it's like, so you're, you're, you're on the edge of this cliff and we're either going to get pushed off. We're going to jump off or we're just going to go with the flow. Like those are the three types of people. Like lemmings. Right. And like a lot of us are resisting it and a lot of us just want to jump off. And then the majority of us though, or the majority of people are kind of just going with the flow. Right. They're sitting on the fence on things. And a lot of, a lot of the path of least resistance. It is just to, is just to be carried down the lazy river and assume that the majority, um, is informed enough to, to agree with basically. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a big fallacy. I always think of uh, salmon, strong fish, swims upstream. Right. Only dead flesh, fish go with the flow. Oh, there you go. I like that. Um, but the majority of people are kind of sitting on the fence or just trying to go with the flow. They're trying, like you're saying, path of least resistance. But those are the people who need to get in conversations. They mm-hmm. need to make decisions. Most of them are nescient and most of them are low information. So we have to find those people and we have to have conversations with them. And that's why posts like this are important because it sparks some interest in some people. Cause the actual post was a question. Like the actual graphic itself was a question. It was not, um, it was, it's trying to get people thinking and, and maybe thinking of something they didn't even know was of salient was like actually relevant. Um, and it's almost like we have to, put onto people this sense of responsibility where as an adult in, in a country or in a world, you have some responsibility to contribute positively to collective sense making. Like, I think there should be, there is some adult ownership that needs to come with that. You it's, it shouldn't be an option to just be lazy and not contribute. And worse yet, like throw a wrench in the equation of sense making that we're all trying to do by, by putting shit information, right? Like the information you put out there, um, if it's co- like some people in the comments said things that were absolutely like, I know for a fact to be false unequivocally. And we'll talk about even what unequivocal means and how you can come to an unequivocal co- conclusion with, uh, you know, this asymmetry of negative proof. Uh, I want to talk about that because I think it's really relevant, but it's like, that's a really big problem when people willfully put unfounded information, they might feel that it's, uh, that it's true. But if they haven't done any due diligence to find out if it's true or not, they are essentially stifling our collective sense-making efforts by slowing this process down, by limiting our ability to actually fully understand something, by just carelessly putting shit into the machine that just distracts everyone. 
And I think there has to be this almost like onus of responsibility that adults need to either say nothing. If you don't know something to be, have a high, high probability of being true, don't say it. And, you know, if you are, there should be like this onus where it's like, I want to play a little part. I'll just research this little nano section of this whole big problem we're solving and try and contribute positively. And, you know, I almost labeled the commenters as uh, a generative player where they're actually generating positive information, asking questions, giving good information. And then the other one, I just, for lack of a better name, labeled them salamis, which are just <laughs> like, I heard a friend of mine, um, my uh, father-in-law was at a dinner party and just started calling people salamis. I'm like, that's a great word. Cause it's not really an insult, but like, you know, being a salami is not a good thing, but it's just like people who are using lazy thinking, who are not actually employing the scientific method to come to their sort of conclusions or simply there to be trolls. Like those are salamis. So we'll identify those later. That's funny. I have a, a, at Western, one of my friends, Bill Gardner, his father was actually a uh, conservative writer and a professor at the university of Toronto. He, he wrote okay. many books. One of them is called the book of absolutes, which is just awesome. Cool. Um, but he's call everyone like, like an onion. <laughs> it just reminded me of that it's yeah. like that dude's an onion yeah like, what it's like and no one knows no one takes being an onion or salami personally because it's not really a direct attack but like when you know you know it's like yeah. Yeah. yeah so so i'm actually the last time i talked to you i was writing a book on the yes. foundations of political conversations and one of those chapters i titled the termination of truth has turned into a book of its own because I, I felt it was more important and I could get it out quicker. So that, that should be done soon. But so is the former book still in action? It's just the form, being the on former the former book burner? is still in action, but this other chapter turned into 80,000 words. Um, and it just, so, and it's about what we're talking about right now. That's why I'm talking about nescience and ignorance and why I want to bring Beautiful. this other topic. But you just touch base on something that's very important. Like you talk about generative people and yeah. salamis. Right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, so this guy, Walt Lippmann, Walter Whitman, you ever heard that name? He's from like the early 1900s. Is it Walt Whit Walt Whitman? No, Lippmann. Okay. And uh, he had something called, he created a concept called the pseudo environment. Okay. And I use this heavily in my book. And the pseudo environment is you have your own pseudo environment and I have my own pseudo environment. And it is the, it is the aggregation of all information that you were exposed to. Okay. Right. So we both have the same mainstream media in our pseudo environment, but we might be exposed to it in different degrees. But you also have your family, your friends, your self-curated uh, content on your Instagram, your right. Facebook, like all your social media. Um, outside your house is different than outside my house. You know what I mean? Your, so all inputs that have different. come from your subjective experience create your pseudo environment. Create your, exactly. Okay. Create your pseudo environment. So everyone's pseudo environment is different. Right. Right. And you're talking about generative and... Uh, and then salamis. And so we're talking about environment. So I like thinking of those types of people spreading disinformation and misinformation as pollution. Okay. I like that. They're, they're polluting. You're polluting my environment. You're making it harder for me to see. You're making it harder for me to navigate. Like mm -hmm. Nietzsche's like you muddy the waters to make yourself sound deep kind of stuff. Well, some people muddy the waters to manipulate you yep. or, or just to, so, like, so, anyways, we can go into it forever. Some people just put information out there because they want to get more likes and something is like going to catch their attention, whatever. Yeah. There's, there's many reasons we don't need to get into all of them. But the concept of pseudo environment and thinking about manipulating your own pseudo environment so that it suits your needs to seek the truth right. is a very important thing. And that could be something as simple as following an alternative viewpoint to yours. 
Mm. Like following someone who always says alternative viewpoints to make sure you're not in your own echo chamber. Yeah, to keep some balance. Yeah, and it could also mean like just stop following annoying people like stop following that girl who's always putting her selfie booty shot out there (laughs) like some guy who's just lifting weights and trying to get likes you know what i mean like it's it's, it's just brain yeah you have to like clean your own room like you have to like once in a while you got to be like all right this is kind of getting messy you know what are my values do the people i'm following or or listening to actually align with the kind of human i want to be or the kind of you know world view i want to take and yeah, you got to clean house once in a while. And if you're never changing your mind, you're not doing it right. Right. Like this is another thing too. It's really convenient to never have to change your story. And it seems like people who are just do not want to change their story or their perception of reality. Eventually reality gives them nudges. It's like nudges that their view is not accurate and they can either fight reality or they can incorporate reality and change their story and change their perspective. And it's like, I think curiosity is the biggest element there. It's like the stubbornness to not change your perspective is one option. And two is like a curiosity to seek ways to expand your reality, to like have a cooler room with more stuff in it to allow you to make wiser choices. Right. And I and think you just say the word curiosity and it just jumps out at me. Uh, Robert J. Lifton's this guy who wrote a book on brainwashing. It's called, okay. It's called thought reform to be more like, <laughs> you know, more, more scientific sure. thought reform. And uh, he talks about loaded language a lot in it, loading okay. the language. And one of the things that I always think of when I hear the word curiosity is curiosity killed the cat. Hmm. That's an idiom. We, it's like curiosity killed the cat. Yeah, let's unpack that. What does that mean? It's, it says curiosity is not good. Yeah. <laughs> where, right? the, where the heck does that come from? <laughs> that's crazy, right? Like that's a crazy thing. And we learned that. Is that brainwashing? Yeah. We oh, learned that since shit. we were a kid. That's loaded language. And, yeah. and it makes sense in the sense of teaching. But cats have nine lives, so they're good. Yeah. <laughs> but like teaching a child that, it's like, okay, like there's a plug there. Yeah. Curiosity killed the cat because we don't want him to stick his toy in the plug mm. and get electrocuted. That makes Never sense. Never thought of that. Right. But as we get older, it's supposed to be like, no, like curiosity is the key. Mm. Like, curiosity is everything. That's, that's yeah. how we learn. Like it's play. It, it, it is the curious people who change the world. Yes. Right. But we're stuck with curiosity killed the cat. So I, I just, I just find that concept of loaded language and sayings that we have, like last, last one, we talked a little bit about uh, anti-concepts. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and we got a lot of like, you know, everyone knows like double speak from Orwell. Yep. Um, but there are people who load the language in particular ways so that we cannot really, it, it throws us into a paradigm, into a box so that we can't think outside of that box. Mm-hmm. Right? It creates it's, false constraints that I think some people aren't even aware of. Right. It's like the concept of like refusing a vaccine. It's like, I'm not refusing it. Mm-hmm. Like if a person refuses rape, mm-hmm. do you refuse, you know, do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. It's, it's just, it's just a very, it's just a very weird way to twist the language. It is. And it's like a, it's almost like we, um, this whole notion where if you do not, if you are against, uh, if you do not want to have the COVID-19 vaccine administered to you, you automatically get thrown into a box of anti-vaxxer. So you can be pro-vaccine, You can be pro-responsible use of vaccines with informed consent and yet not want to take the COVID vaccine right now in April 2021. People don't see that as a possible scenario. 
right? Because it involves a bit more. You can't be a salami and think that because it involves a little bit of brain energy to put into thinking about that and like actually understanding it. And like, I think that's a problem where it's like, well, if you're not this, then you must be this. It's like, well, no, that's not a binary. That's the, the, the selection criteria is not binary. It's not one or the other, right? If you're not, um, anti-racist, then you must be racist. And that's the, this, this word fuckery that like people knowingly do this to confuse people. And it's really frustrating and it's so simplistic and dumb. Um, and it's just like, it's almost like people are unwilling to have a, even like dive into a little bit of nuance to understand why that's not the case, why there doesn't need to be a choice made between two things. Yeah. There's, there's always certainly going to be a forced tribalism. Mm. Like we naturally have tribalism, right? We naturally seek out people who are like us. Like that, that makes sense for survival. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not going to want to hang out with people who have none of the same interests as me. Right. Right. It just doesn't make sense. Yep. Right. Or if I, if I eat, if I'm a carnivore, if, you know, if I do a carnivore diet, I'm not going to hang out. You know, my survival depends on getting food. Right. And I decide to live in a village full of vegans. Well, it's going to be a tough life for me. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's yeah. just like, so in, in some instances, tribalism makes 100% sense. But I would argue that it's important to once in a while, maybe have a conversation with a vegan who's willing to have a good conversation. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's, that's good to do. It takes effort and it takes like, uh, a sense of pleasure and, and play and having conversations who with people who disagree with you, who, you know, are coming there with a sense of curiosity. Also like those people are like unicorns. I love having that. That's why we have great conversations because we don't have to agree on everything, but I want to know why you think what, you know, because I know you're a high information person. And I'm like, well, shit, maybe I'm missing some information. Like I want to tease out where is the core root of where we disagree and what is your strongest point for why you think that? And I'll give you mine. And then we can both together be like, all right, well, this is, you know, you reach a synthesis eventually of like, all right, well, I, d I had inferior information about this point. So now I'm going to expand my perspective. And with new information comes a change of mind. Like when you get new information, you should be able to change your mind. Yeah. And interestingly, I can't remember his name. I wish I really could because I just saw this within the last week. But there's a guy talking about uh, like veganism. And what he was saying was he was talking about how there's these two extremes. Like he's talking about the tribalism of it, okay. right? These extremes and all these within diets. veganism. Uh, no, just diets in general. Okay, okay. Um, but he's like, but he was with that in context. Okay. So he's talking about people who eat meat and people who don't eat meat kind of thing. Right. Because people are saying that eating meat <clears throat> is very bad for the environment. Right. Sure. And he's like, he's like, what if everyone just stopped eating meat during the week and they ate meat? on the weekends. So you, you still eat meat. You just maybe have some fish on Wednesday and then you eat meat on the weekend. Mm -hmm. He's like, if everyone did that, if everyone in the world cut down their, their meat consumption by 50%, then meat consumption in the world will go down by 50%. Right. He's like, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing or half the people yeah. in the world are extreme. It, it was just a neat idea the way when I heard it, because I was thinking in, in terms of tribalism. Yeah. Right. He's like, no, he's like, stop thinking like this. Stop mm. thinking. You're it's always okay. black and white. Yeah. He's like there's like, a shitload of gray to explore. Yeah. And it's actually way funner to explore that. Yeah. And he's just saying like the science like isn't against it. Like, right. You know what I mean? Like the science right. shows that eating red meat is fine. It has more to do with calorie consumption than it has to do with actual, you know, food. Right. And uh, it, it was just, it was just very neat because, because yeah. constantly uh, all we're seeing right now is forced tribalism. Anytime something starts to die down, 
you see something happen in the media. Oh, there's a new shooting, and now they want to try and push a, na- a race narrative to right. try to keep that divide going. <laughs> because it is very weird that it hooks us. It hooks us like like it's really it's it's a really good thing to use to hook us tribalism, and especially when it's like you know in the ecosystem of social media it is really profitable to create tribalism. This is like this, we've talked about this before, but this like sub uh, awareness problem that's in there where it's like, if I make money by keeping your eyeballs connected to your phone and I know that when something brings up this, you know, feeling of tribalism or you want to get involved on one side or the other, it makes you look at your phone more frequently. It makes it so that that's very profitable. And there's this weird algorithmic thing that happens in social media land where like, that's facilitated that's brought to the surface and incentivized so we have this weird wrench in the in the machine that no one's really talking about but like that's a factor as well because then it just propagates it. it's not that that you know like certain narratives will create that but the propagation of that into like people's minds is largely it's not a bug it's like it's built in and feature and and we have our own built-in algorithms in our own brains, like our brains seek patterns. So right now I know that the majority of the time I have any conversation with you, we are going to agree on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. We think a, a lot alike in a lot of ways, and we try to find our opinions the same ways. Like right. First principle, first principle style. kind right. of thing. Right. So given that we agree on a lot of things, let's say I don't have enough time or energy or desire to look up a particular topic. Right but you took the time to look up that topic. It is very likely that because I already know that I am very tribal with you on a lot of other topics, mm-hmm. that it will be easy for me to like surrogate my opinion forming or proxy right. it to you. So if, if I'm like, oh, what does Nick think about masks? Right? Sure. It's like, well, I'm pretty sure he did a lot of research. He seems to be pretty certain. And anytime we've had a conversation before, we've agreed. So I'm going to agree with him without doing my own research. Because we agreed on the tools we both use to come to to our opinions. Right. That That's us. Right. But a lot of people has nothing to do with the process. It just has to do with they agree with someone else on a particular outcome. So they agree with other things. Right. And what I mean by that is when we're talking about tribalism, like, isn't it weird that... If I tell you someone is pro-mask and pro-lockdown, you're going to assume that that person probably supports BLM or Antifa, loves Justin Trudeau, likes Biden. Yeah, it is weird because I ought, I would assume that. You know, I would, might, might be a yeah. vegetarian. Like, it's just we have this, like, a view. Package deal. And yeah, we put everyone in these little, nice little boxes, and we also put ourselves in those boxes. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's why it's very important to say something as simple as I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm anti-COVID vax. Sure. Right. I like, I'm anti-reckless vaccine <laughs> like strategy. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, have, I haven't put it out yet, but I have a video on it and I talk about the word reckless mm. in particular because reckless is less reckoning. And reckoning is calculating, considering the consequences, the potential outcomes of your courses of action. I love this word. Right. I love That's, defining words because, yeah. like, I've just learned two new words that are like, or I, I knew reckless, obviously, but like that definition is beautiful because that makes perfect sense. Yeah. There's a reckoning. There will be a reckoning, a calculation, right? right? So reckless is 
lack of calculating or considering the consequences. And a lot of people are being called reckless for not wanting the vaccine. But when I look at that, I'm like, well, the majority of people, even the, the low information people who don't want the vaccine, the low information answer is there hasn't been any long-term trials on it. <laughs> yeah. Like how can like, we, res- how can we mistake reckless and cautious? Like I look at that person as cautious Yeah, and that is almost like the anti def anti word of reckless, right? Like cautious is conservative is calculated is I want a lot of information before I make a significant decision. Whereas reckless is like, I'm just going to do shit without even knowing any information. And yeah. it's, it is weird how we, we do this word judo in our own reality to like label someone who doesn't want an experimental injection as reckless instead of cautious. Right. So, so then, so then we look at and we say, well, why, why are they being called reckless by this other side? Right. What's the story that creates that definition? And they're saying reckless because they see the person who is not willing to get the jab right away as infecting everyone and killing everyone. Right. That's that's like their idea of it. Well, they've also packed in the assumption that the vaccine is safe, perfectly safe, 100 percent effective at what we're being told it's for. And so if something's perfectly safe and 100 percent effective, you could make the rationalization that it's reckless not to get it. But those are the, the problem is people don't even challenge those assumptions. They just they they just accept that that is their 100 percent unequivocal truth. And like. That's the messed up part. And necessary. They believe it's necessary. Mm, necessary is another one. Yeah. Right? Lately, kind of like we now, need that for our collective safety. Yeah. Like they assumption. took it out of herd immunity, right? And, right? and even like unpacking that herd immunity. So in Ottawa, zero, like zero, ages zero to 29. I looked this up yesterday. Mm-hmm. Ages zero to 29, zero people have died in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. In all of Ontario, it's like two. Of alleged COVID. Of alleged like COVID involving right. at least, right? Okay. So in all of Ontario, right? But in Ottawa, we can literally say zero percent of people. So from a herd immunity perspective, would it not make more sense to let everyone zero to twenty-nine try to get it? Because then once they have it, they are here herd immune. Right. You would right? think so. And then that segment of the population doesn't even have to worry about spreading it. Mm. Right? So if you lock down the older people who are vulnerable, like that's, that's a very simple argument for locking down the people who are very vulnerable. I mean, the percentage of people above the age of 70, 70 plus has 86.64% of all deaths in Ottawa. Hmm. 86% of all deaths in Ottawa are from that. Wow. So if we're thinking of a herd immunity, what's, what's more reckless, right? Uh, locking down and expecting everyone to have to get a jab or you know, injecting, sorry. Yeah. Locking run and injecting this thing that has all of these adverse reactions to people who have a hundred percent survival rate. <laughs> right? Well, when you put it like that, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's goofy. Like, it's like guys, it's really like that, goofy. that seems more reckless to me because it's still in the experimental phases until 2023. Right. Right. Um, sorry. So we, I guess we were going to get into the, no, no, things, but I mean, but, I don't really have a direction for this to go. I, I wanted to review some of the comments. And I, one thing, I, the one thing I really want to talk about was um, this notion of the asymmetry of power um, of a negative proof, because this, I don't think this gets talked about. And if people talked about this, it would be significant because 
we have really good. Okay. So basically the asymmetry of negative proof comes from Karl Popper. And it basically says that if you have a negative proof or evidence against a hypothesis, it is significantly more powerful than any evidence you have for a hypothesis to support it. So that means that a single piece of negative evidence conflicting with the hypothesis that lockdowns are good um, essentially destroys that hypothesis, right? You can have many pieces of positive evidence that support um, the notion that lockdowns are good, um, but you can never actually prove it, right? And especially when it's correlational. But if you have one really good piece of evidence that shows that hypothesis is not true, then you essentially destroy that hypothesis with, with one fell swoop. And we have this case study of Florida and the, the guy, DeSantis is a G because he got a bunch of really smart people, like Nobel Prize laureates, professors from Stanford and Harvard to say, I'm going to do this. We are going to get really good data on this. And we are going to show people the result of this decision. Um, and, you know, basically the court, Florida case study wins the, the wins the lockdown science war, hands down. Like it's a mic drop. And that's why I wrote unequivocal in the post, because whether people are accepting are, are able to accept the truth or not is a different story, but it's a perfect example of a negative proof that can stand alone on its own merit and obliterate a hypothesis, especially about lockdowns. So if you want rationalground.com is this beautiful site that I've been using lately. Um, it actually has a tab called that says lockdowns and it says pros and cons Pros is like two lines, lockdowns. It has subcategories of all the negative effects that we've already studied. This has been going on for a while. Like we've studied all these things, whether it's like suicide or child abuse or mental health problems or all that kind of stuff has a shitload of links. So I think you would agree. We want everyone to do their own research, but we also want everyone to know that doing research is important and research listening to news is not research. Um, but yeah, that asymmetry of proof and the, the power of a negative proof I mean, I hope that doesn't fall on deaf ears, but like, that's really important to know because all you need is one really good piece of evidence to basically nullify a hypothesis. And people talk about, oh, you know, like one of the comments on Instagram was we did lockdowns in the UK um, and it made things better. And I read that. I'm like, okay, so they did a lockdown and things got better, whatever better might mean. I assume it means like less deaths or less cases or whatever. And if we put aside the questioning whether or not number of cases is valid or, or, you know, like any of the quality of, of testing and all that kind of stuff. How can you assume that just because you did a lockdown and things got better, the lockdown is responsible for things getting better? Like what if not even doing a lockdown actually made things significantly better overall? Like there's no control group. So you can't like people just say that with so much confidence. They're like, uh, well, that's false because we did a lockdown in Australia and things got better. So you should have done a better lockdown. And this whole idea that people just don't understand that correlation and causation are different. So like the lockdown, you have no evidence to say that the lockdown caused things to get better. You're just assuming that that happened. Um, but also if you have a really good piece of evidence that shows that lockdown and even the word lockdown is really messed up. It literally comes from prisons where like you have to confine prisoners to their cells if there's a riot or if there's a, someone breaking out. And it's like, it's really, really messed up that we just accept. This is like the normalization of a radical term um, is this really weird thing that started that, that I've noticed. And I'm like, why is everyone talking about this? Like lockdown, a, a province-wide lockdown, that's a term used in prisons, is a radical-ass term to use for a population. And we're just like, oh yeah, lockdowns. Like that's, that's just, we have those once in a while. And it, it, even like I laugh because one of the, 
generative players that that just said something um great in in instagram i think his name was nate parr it was like all he said was if lockdowns work why are we in our sixth one if lockdowns don't work why are we in our sixth one <laughs> i just read that a couple times i'm like that line is like so powerful if you actually tune into it and it's so true and i just yeah i just wish people like you have to be willing to change your mind and so many people seem unwilling yeah there has to so i I call it like a a moral ambition for truth like you you have to like it has to be part of your morality yeah you have to be a crusader for truth like like people say like truth seeking or a truth seeker i like the word it's just become kind of cliche in these times because everyone says it so often Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like become like conspiracy theory right it's just they're words with meanings but it's just overused in such a way that it kind of gets somewhat anti-concept out of there yeah and um but the meaning gets washed out of it yeah and and there needs to be this like humongous attachment to process for finding the conclusion versus the outcome of the conclusion Mm, that's a great point right that should almost be the focus of discussion how did you get to that and then that, and that's that that is what being objective is all about mm-hmm. right it is it is about the process not the outcome and i attach a lot of this thing to and i say the word morality because it is about integrity and integrity is how you build your self esteem and what i have noticed and this is going to sound like a weird blanket statement at first but maybe after you really think about it it'll sink in but a person's ability to stay with the process and be unattached to the outcome has a lot to do with a person's self-esteem. Mm. A person's self-esteem will determine whether or not they are strong enough to stand up and accept any conclusion. Right? Like, so, and I will, I'll define my definition of self-esteem uh, or it's actually Nathaniel Brandon's definition of self-esteem, which is it is your confidence in your competence okay. to handle the challenges the world presents you. Okay. So it's how confident you are that you are capable to handle anything or that you will be okay, no matter what the world throws at you. Mm. So the stronger a person you are, the stronger your character, the more you can accept anything, right? Like you and the more you can adhere on like, I, yeah, adhering to the process requires you to not doubt yourself. Right. And not doubting yourself is a sense of confidence that you can deal with things that are thrown at you. And yeah, right. that's really good. Because what happens is people with low self-esteem, they'll choose the discomfort of cognitive dif- dissonance. They will choose that over the discomfort of anxiety and helplessness because they aren't confident in their competence. Hmm. Right. I'll, I'll repeat that. Cause that was kind of like a, a heavy sentence, but a person who is not confident in their ability to cope with things, to handle things, to move forward, a person who folds very easily will not want to hear or accept truths that are going to present more challenges to them. Right. They will choose the lesser challenge, which is the the mental gymnastics it takes to double think and accept a contradiction or to evade an uncomfortable truth. Right. So it's basically it's better to accept as truth something you kind of know probably isn't fully truth than it is to not know and have uncertainty and unknown. 
or so it's or, better to know something not true than to not know or than to know something that makes your life more difficult mm, okay yes. so, so what i mean by that is like uh lockdowns are political so we say that sentence well mm. what does that really mean well that means that you're being manipulated and this lockdown doesn't have as much to do with covid or or your health or your health Right. And that means that you are being manipulated and you've been manipulated for this whole year. Mm. Right. That that's a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people. Right. Right. And me probability wise. So is it possible? Yes, because I am one of the people and, and you as well are one of the people who believe that corruption does actually exist outside of Hollywood movies. Yes. Right? Like <laughs> it's, it's possible what for a novel concept. Yeah. It is possible for it to exist. So, so for some people though, that they couldn't accept that. Like, what, what do you mean, Jay? Yeah. It shatters your, the ground underneath them would, would fall and it'd be really scary right. if they accepted that. Right. And it's like, it's like, no, like, do I need to remind you that like Pol Pot, Nazi Germany, you know, Mao, Stalin, like those things happened. You know, like, do you think part of the ignorance is a lack of understanding history? Because the more the more you look at history, like I've gone on this tear in the past two months of trying to understand, deepen my understanding of money. Because I basically had the really uncomfortable realization that I got 18.5% of my long-term accumulated wealth stolen from me by the Canadian government this year because they printed 18.5% more money. And it's like, you know, and I wanted to understand like, what is money? Why was I never, why did I never learn about money in school? Why are kids never taught about how money's created? What is money? Like, what are the roles of money? Like store of value, medium exchange, all these things. And I found it really interesting. And by understanding, by better understanding the history of money, I was better able to objectively see how we got to where we are now and the weird things that are happening. And I think that I feel like if you don't know the history of Mao, of Stalin, of Hitler. Like if you don't actually understand those stories and how they came to actually become reality, then it's really hard to see. Like if you understand that, you can see some of the trickle crumbs that led there. And you can then start to see some of those crumbs in the way the world is today. But if you don't know those things, you can't detect those. Right. And it's funny, like you say like crumbs and it's like that, that is really all that is left in terms, in terms of all like nine, the 1940s were, you know, a long time ago, it's 80 years ago. Yeah. Right. That's 80 years ago. So it's a human amount, life ago, the amount of people left from that, like still alive from the 1940s mm. who were old enough to experience it because someone born in the 1940s didn't experience the 1940s. Right. Right. Like when you're five years old, you don't really comprehend what's happening. Right. But if you're 15 years old in the 1940s, well, chances are you're either dead or you're not really up talking about you know, yeah, you're not on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, sure. not, you're not telling, you're not spreading the word. You're not spreading yeah. the information. So all that is left is really just a couple crumbs. And it is up to people who have a moral ambition for truth uh, and who are interested in history to Seek look at those up. crumbs. Yeah. But a lot of the people who are there, that first degree of uh, information, like separation, that the people who could really tell us how things were and their truths about it, they're not around. So we don't have very good access mm. to the worst of times in humanity. Right. And it's weird how like these things happen. Like most of the things that happen in the world in history, sorry, most of the big historical events are spread out by a generation. Right. 
right? There's whoever. It's like long enough to forget. Exactly. It's it's like, it's like it always happens at the time when all that's left is crumbs. Mm. Right. And and that seems to be how it is. And that's probably something that plays into the pattern because if it's cyclical, then it's like something really shitty happens. We go through enough time to forget about it to create enough space for something like that shitty to happen again without us remembering how the previous shitty situation came to be. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's really messed up. And it's like this discontinuance in the historical record in memory and what's considered important to know in society. Like we think that under like, we think that learning what a calculator in all of our pockets can do is more important than understanding the history of the world so that we can be better prepared for the future. Like that's, those are weird priorities. Right. And then, and then scary to add to that is, you know, we're left with crumbs. So we look up things through books, the internet, et cetera, but who writes those, right? Who writes those and how much of what is written is passed on? How much of it was, how many of the books were burned? Yeah. Right. And how much of the crumbs are now Chinese whispers? Yeah. So, so that, that whole concept, when we start thinking about our pseudo environment, it gets very scary because the amount of misinformation and pollution out there, and then the amount of misinformation in the sense of incomplete information. A lot of us think of misinformation as incorrect information, but it can also be incomplete information. There's things that we don't know, which would change everything. Yeah. And I think in, in sense making, this whole notion of pollution. Like I look at sense making as this big complex machine with lots of cogs and gears. And a lot of people have to work together in a pretty intricate way to make this machine work and spit out truth. Like something goes in one side, a fact comes in one side or, or a piece of information. It goes through this massive sense making machine. And then out the other side comes this collective agreement of whether or not that is accurate or whether or not that is not accurate. Like what, like a, a, a simplified perspective comes out the other side. It's really hard to make that machine work. There's lots of parts. What's really easy to do is jam a wrench into it and fuck the whole machine up. Right. And this is like the asymmetry of power of pollution in the information economy is really like, it's a big force to work against. And it's like a big problem, I think, because it's really easy to, to sneak one little piece of information or put one little seed of doubt in there and have that infect people so easily to where we've just set the machine back like, a lot of time it's gonna take a lot to repair that yes that's it, where conspiracy theorists i think is is this is one of those wrenches because as soon as you say oh that's conspiracy theory people just automatically discount and lose focus with like actually understanding things right and i always find the concept of collective consciousness very neat and it's neat to me in the sense because for me when i think of collective i always think of the collective works best when the individuals work best yeah so, and that, and that's what the termination of truth is about to me. It's a book providing a framework for individuals to really do things. And the information processing of, of the individual is one of the most important aspects because you, each person has their own pseudo environment, but how you process your information right. is, is just incredibly important because how you process your information is going to, that, that's how have you been indoctrinated? Mm-hmm. right? Uh, what limiting paradigms do you have? Uh, what is your mood? What is your energy level? Cause that's going to affect things like your emotions. Mm. Uh, what is your effort? What are your time constraints? Right? There's all these little aspects like that. What is your desire to change your pseudo environment? 
right? We have all these little things and it all comes down to the individual. And when individuals each make sense, have their own non-contradicting opinions, and then they bring it together. At that point, what individuals are doing is just generating for each other. Mm. They're not salamis. Right. Right. So if, if you have one individual who isn't doing their due diligence to really make sure that their information processing is on point and that they are managing their pseudo environment as best as they can, they're curious, right? They have that moral ambition for truth. If each individual is doing that, they will be a generator. If they don't, they will be a salami or an onion. Yeah. And I think the, one of the key elements of going through understanding a set of rules to make sense of the world and becoming a generative human is actually being able to detect salamis like the red flags of when you can label someone confidently with a high degree of probability as a salami is really important because it allows you to filter through some of the pollution right you're essentially able to have like an air purifier to get all the crap out so that you just maintain clarity and like i think it's really important because a lot of people that are salamis aren't trying to be salamis I think you get the odd one. That's like a proud salami that they, they enjoy trolling people and just messing up a conversation. But I think the majority of them are, uh, nescient. Yes. I I would agree that the majority of them are nescient, but I also think that the majority of people are also ignorant in their selection of who they choose to get their information from. Uh, And that would be because they lack the moral ambition that I'm talking about. Yep. yeah, that's or, fair. Or the self-esteem more precisely, because I don't know. It seems that the majority of people who have a certain opinion seem to all get their information from mainstream narratives. Right. Can we unpack, what does mainstream narrative mean? Let's unpack that briefly. I, I just mean you're the whatever the mainstream media propagates. Traditional, centralized, like television or radio that's heavily yeah. influenced by politics and corporations. Yeah, television, radio, um, all of the popular newspaper medias, which are also on the internet now, right? And then also within the social media, we have to keep, we have to keep, we can't ignore that so much stuff is censored and extremely right. biased. True. Um, so anyone who agrees with all of that, because somehow all of that seems to agree and always push the exact same narrative. <laughs> right. So people who always agree with that, if at this point they haven't been able to, to notice many contradictions, many changes in story, lots of gaslighting. If, if after a year they haven't noticed these things, right? I mean, like there's so many videos of our Canadian politicians just not answering questions mm. or like, what's her name? Uh, Henry, Dr. Henry, can't remember, Bonnie Henry maybe is her name. I'm, I'm not okay. sure. Alberta, yep. oh, sorry, BC. I can't remember if it's BC or Alberta. She flat out said none of this is really about science. like she literally said that fauci has literally said in a video like uh six feet three feet would work we don't really know (laughs) like they've they've actually said those things right or fauci has even said things like you know once you get over 35 cycle thresholds on the pcr test it's basically all false positives right and who said it like lots of experts who we are told to listen to and are pushed in the media are saying things that contradict things that they say regularly right and no one is questioning it right and that so is it that they're not do you think it's that the majority of people who aren't questioning that are not seeing it or is that they're seeing it and choosing to ignore it i think they're seeing it i don't know how they can't see it Hmm. you know like like some of it some of it is certainly censored or limited 
and how much it gets out there. But I've shown people things and they literally like, like just ignore it. Wow. Like I, and like, uh, like a weird one, for example, was when the proud boys came out, came about, uh, I had never heard of them before. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm like, Oh, who are these proud boys? And I put a thing on Instagram. Like, I don't know who these guys are, but I looked, I looked at their, uh, their like platform, like the things that they stand for. And I agree with them. Hmm. Right. They're like minimal, minimal limited government, uh, the veneration of the housewife, you know, freedom, like the whole don't tread on me. Like they're, they're just pro freedom dudes. Mm-hmm. And, and for those listening, veneration of the housewife doesn't mean all women should be housewives. It just means respecting the housewife. Yeah. That's all that means folks. Like yeah. <laughs> people, people get, I've, I've heard someone get offended by that. And it's like, no, it's just saying like, don't treat a woman who decides to stay home and raise her children as if she's a lesser human being. Right. It's like she's raising the future. You know, like, yeah. like maybe stop. that may be the most important role. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Literally. Like you know, so it's like, but I just look at it and I was like, these guys are cool. Like I, I like the group. I would support them. I would be a part of them probably. Yeah, and you went directly to find out what their values were, right? Yeah. You didn't look at like what something someone took out of context or you're like, I'm going right to the source. Like what did these guys put on their website to tell us what their values reflect or like what their values are? Yeah. Like that's probably a good way of and, doing it. And this guy sent me, this friend of mine sent me a clip saying that, uh, I forget his name right now, the main founder, he's a Canadian guy from Toronto. Mm-hmm. He's kind of a hipster dude. And uh, he sent me a video of him or a link of him. And it was uh, 10 reasons why I hate Jews. It was like an article that he wrote. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, this guy's racist, blah, blah, blah. Right. So I'm like, oh, crazy. I'm like you wouldn't see that in their values. Right. So I do some research and I look it up and I find an article by the Israel times or one of the Israel magazines. Mm-hmm. And they're like talking about it and saying how it was a funny satirical piece. And then Ezra Levant of rebel news does a thing on it and they interview each other and like they're friends, they're candid. Right. And it's cause it's a satirical piece. I'm like, well, Ezra, Ezra is Jewish. Right. Right. I'm like, so if they're all cool and Israel's cool and it says that it was a comedic piece, then I'm pretty sure he's not racist. Right. And I showed this to the guy. So you did one layer deeper of research. You didn't and just accept it. You were like, yeah. I'm going to investigate this. So I showed it to the guy and then he sent me some link. He sent me some link of them like beating up someone. But then you look up the clips from that video and you realize that this one person was attacked by a bunch of Antifa people and he didn't realize that a bunch of proud boys were around. So they all jumped in and protected the other person and beat up the Antifa. You know what I mean? It was Interesting. like yeah. self-defense. Right. right. But I'm just like, and, and I'm pointing these things out and this person just, just didn't do it. And he kept saying, no, they're racist, they're racist. And then I found out that their leader was black. Oh, the founder figure. was, was this white guy, McKinnis, Gavin McKinnis. Okay. The founder was this white guy, but for the last three year, two, three years, the leader was some Afro Cuban dude. Interesting. So I'm just like, you know, like, how'd, and, you, how'd your friend take that? And, and the media <laughs> and the media was all saying, you know, white supremacist, white supremacist, because Trump said this. In uh, in the debates, he said, "Stand by and stand 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 down and stand by" or something like that. Mm-hmm. So like, oh, he's telling them to stand by these white supremacists. So I'm just like, how are they white supremacists? And I'm just like, well, I was like, this is for a white supremacist group to have a black leader. Like, yeah, it's pretty bold of them. Like that that sounds like <laughs> something Dave Chappelle would do, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, and, and but this person never, like, never. Like acknowledged acknowledged it yeah. yeah and so chose ignorance yeah some and, people uh, just don't want to change their mind and, and it's like you wonder why i always wonder why it's like what ab- what about this do you not accept as like valid like what is your 
hesitation. And I've asked that to some people and they just don't answer. They're like, you're not worth the conversation. I'm like, I don't even know what to say to that. Like, it's like when people get proven wrong, they're so hurt by it that they just disengage, you Self, know, self-esteem, self-esteem. There you go. Wow. I never, I never, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to this again and unpack that because that is so, like, there's so many layers there, but that makes so much sense to me. Self-esteem is everything, man. And I don't think, and that's what I mean. So how did, so then your book for helping people uncover truth, there must be an element of uh, how to build self-esteem in there. Not really. I don't like the, the process of practicing. Or is it a byproduct? It just happens. Yes. Okay. Okay. The process of integrity builds self-esteem. The more you follow through on your values, the, the greater your self-esteem. Will be. Oh, okay. Every Very time you, you, you do, every time you do the opposite of your values, which is, you know, disalignment with your integrity, mm-hmm. you will lose self-esteem. But every time your character uh, reinforces your values, well, you're, you know, that's acting with self-esteem or sorry, that's acting with integrity. You will feel better about yourself. Right. And you'll feel more confident in your ability to navigate the world aligned on the things you believe in. Right. It's like self-esteem is just, it's, it's a spine. It's a shield and a spine. You know, it's just, I can handle this. Yeah. It's like this invisible bubble of protection that, that gives you a sense of confidence with dealing with the world's challenges. Let's be real. There's always going to be challenges. Yeah. And, And what you'll notice is the majority of people who choose ignorance or, or like whether it's conscious or subconscious, let's just say it like that, whether they choose ignorance, they're going to be lower self-esteem people. Hmm. They might appear confident in everything, but they're going to be lower self-esteem people. I would, I would put money on that like 10 times out of 10. Yeah. And sometimes the most, the people who boast most and try and give the appearance of the most confidence. Um, I think sometimes are the people with the, the lowest self-esteem. It's like, they have to do that as like, their pseudo self-esteem protection to protect their, the reality that they're not very confident in either what they do or how they, how the world perceives them or whatnot. And yeah, I just think, I I think I just think there's a lot of good people acting as bad players in the information economy. And it's like, I don't know how to solve it. I don't know how to, you know, like on social media, everyone's on these disparate planets where you say one thing and then you drop it and you never touch it again. So automatically there's no follow. There's no, there's no process involved, right? It's just like a little dart that you threw and then you don't have to ever think or care about that again, but it felt good throwing that because it seemed like something you wanted to say at the time you were pissed, right? This thing, this post conflicted with your personal story and you took it as like a hit on your identity. You know, your grandma died from COVID and someone said, you know, we don't need to mask up or we, we don't need to do lockdowns. And you were like, that person saying my grandma's life wasn't important. So yeah. fuck that person. And it's like, I get that. I, I can totally empathize with, you know, the frustration, but it's not the right way to, to relay that frustration. Right. Yeah. You talk a lot about, like, I remember our last conversation, you talked a lot about like the attention economy and like yeah. attention as a commodity pretty much. And the majority of our interactions now, especially with isolation, right, which is another like thought reform thing because you're controlling people's pseudo environments very strongly. Yeah. You isolate people. And they have more control over a digital pseudo environment than they do our in-person one. Precisely. That's yeah. And, and then given that the digital environment, keeping the digital, the digital environment in context with attention or attention in context with the digital environment, what we notice is the medium, 
the media that we choose to interact with now or that we are left interacting with because I'm not even supposed to be here right now. Right, yeah, right. The, the media that we are left with is very low attention. It is very little focus. Mm. Instagram is quick, quick dopamine hits. Right. Right, it has nothing to do with like, you're never gonna get a long, a long message. No, it's always shallow distraction centric. Right, and that's like uh, Marshall McLuhan's is Canadian dude and he wrote the the medium is the massage, right? It's like, it's what what gets your brain, right? Mm. But it's really the medium is the message. Right. right? Because (laughs) the medium limits what is possible. So what is possible in Instagram is extremely limited. I make a video that that's 10 minutes and I look at the views, it's like, okay, people who, um, people who look at the first minute and then sign off versus people who make it past the first, the second minute, everyone who makes it past the second minute watches all 12 minutes. Interesting. Right. Yeah. But then it was like a threshold. Yeah. So it's like, you just have to, the, the people who are willing to go past that, like needed dopamine hit, you know, once they can get past that, they'll watch the whole thing. But it's not like a gradual drop off. Yeah, it's the digital medium so limiting. Like even just like subtle things. Like if I said, hey, or if I said, hey, like those are very different. They show up the same on social media. Like the, it lacks all human context of how to interpret that thing that was just said. And like that's just one example. But like it's hard enough to get your point across to someone in person, let alone if you remove all of the aura of the way humans communicate, which actually is biased towards non verbal like what we say is the is of least importance in terms of how we interpret something that someone says you eliminate all that obviously there's going to be disagreements or you know things taken out of context but it's like i think we just have to do our best and also know we need to prioritize seeing other human beings and like make an effort even in our own core family network like i try and stimulate family discussions at meals and and everyone gets pissed that i bring these things up like oh we can't talk the the craziest thing that drives me nuts is like i'll bring up something i'll ask a question about covid or vaccines or something and everyone's like oh we don't we're not talking about this this is the most important thing in our lives right now why are we not talking about it why are we unable to have a human conversation with our own family about the biggest thing that's affecting all of our lives in the most significant way it ever has like that's that's like the essence of where of what the problem is is like people are so pissed and frustrated and it's almost like the longer something pulls you along for the more apathetic you become and the more you're just like just end it i don't care if i have to get a vaccine just end it and i get that but i also think that like there's more at stake than what people think there's more at stake this is like the fundamental thing you know like people who died in wars fighting for our freedom uh, would be pissed right now they'd be so pissed we just forfeited everything that they literally them and their friends like it's wars are crazy we're not this is one of these forgetting things right like kids now don't understand that like people ran out of boats onto beaches with machine guns shooting at them and they died so like yeah something it's like, really messed up something like 90 percent certainty you're gonna die yeah and they still did it because they were like, this is really important yeah. for the for the rest of this country. But like we this is important enough to do. And we just have this forgetting period. And now we're just like relinquishing our right to go outside our fucking house. And we forget that that happened. And like, that's really it kind of it makes me pretty sad to be like, how do we forget about that? Why didn't schools teach us the importance of that? Yeah. This one guy uh, just put a thing up, Aaron Edgley on uh, on Instagram and. He's a really good analogy. And he's like, imagine, imagine the Titanic was sinking and we could only save like 25% of the people. 
Mm-hmm. So we took everyone over the age of 70 and we filled up the boats first. And then we told the kids and the That's a great mothers analogy. and children to stay on the boat and wait until all of the elderly people are on the boats and safe. Right. It's like, that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, like, that's completely inverted. That, I'm like, that's crazy. Yeah. It's like, when you think about it, that that's, that's a pretty, pretty fair analogy. And I also think that even under that is the assumption that we have to choose. It's like, we can probably protect those people and also not harm all the rest of the people like this false dichotomy of choice that the false dichotomy of choice comes up all the time in my brain now after we had that conversation about politics when you talked about how like when you vote you're given a choice between really two things even though there are only two of like 10 and they're the two worst ones but we accept that as our only options and it's like you can protect old people really well more effectively than we're doing now without harming everyone else who's not at risk of this right like it's that's actually the most efficient way to do it and it it boggles my mind to be like and a lot of people I speak to are, are in agreement with a lot of these things. They're like, lockdowns are so silly. Like, what, this this doesn't make sense. And to me, I'm like, well, is it just the people that I hang out with that are that are giving me the sense that, like, everyone agrees this is silly, yet we're still doing it? So is it people aren't coordinating to actually, like, have a collective voice to create change? Or is it that, like, my sub-ecosystem, my pseudo-environment is just loaded with those people because that's who I've chosen to be around? And it's like... This really sucks. And I mean, logically, like we were talking about reckless earlier. So you lock down everyone. And if we take the concept of natural herd immunity as existing. Okay. okay, Let's just assume it exists, especially amongst people who have a 99.9 whatever percent chance of living. Right. That would probably constitute towards natural herd immunity. People assume those Um, people just haven't gotten it though. Like this is another weird thing where people don't know enough about stuff like this to know that like, just because you didn't have a positive test, it doesn't mean you didn't have it. So so in Ottawa, for example, zero to 59 years of age account for 83% of the cases. Zero to 59 years of age account for 83% of cases. And how many, and you said that the deaths, what were so, th- And that accounts for less than 3% of the deaths. Okay. That age group. Okay. So if everyone else above, right, because everyone else above accounts for 97%. anyways so it's shocking when you look at numbers and you can actually you can actually place them and make order of them because it's like this makes no sense so what makes more sense locking everyone down and then it'll keep breaking out amongst all these young people who are pretty much you know 100 percent guaranteed to survive almost unless they have some major comorbidities sure right and those are the people who could just lock up with the old people as well right sure um so freedom of choice. If so, you think you're vulnerable, then don't go to work yeah, and protect yourself. That's fine. So we could either lock everyone up and then it just keeps reemerging and resurging. And it seems to be resurging through younger people. Anyways, people who are still moving around and not staying at home, not in long-term care facilities. Right. Right. So it seems to be traveling amongst them anyways, or spreading, transmitting amongst them anyway. So why not let that keep happening to build up herd immunity? And then when you open up every, there's herd immunity. <laughs> Right. Like it's not spreading the same or we keep locking everyone up and it just keeps resurging in and out and we keep having lockdown after lockdown. And if it didn't work, why are we doing it? If it works, why do we have to do it again? And meanwhile, the knock lockdowns in themselves are harmful, like very harmful. This is, it almost seems like you lose context to the fact that not letting people work, not letting people move 
and exercise and making their lives significantly more filled with friction is an added stressor that reduces your ability to survive and like confront a a viral threat. (laughs) Like this is the, the whole notion that we haven't even talked about health. Um, Like I've heard health not spoken about once in any government messaging. And when you mention the immune system, you're like a conspiracy theorist now. It's like, that's shocking. How did we get there? Because we don't even talk about all of the effects of lockdowns on reducing one's ability to be healthy and how health is the primary thing you need to not be significantly affected by a virus. It's like, that's, that's really important to talk about. Yeah. I, I remember at the beginning of this, at the beginning of this whole thing, I put out like this free download with on my app, my website through metrolife.com. Yep. And it was like a tracking sheet. And I was like, and I just remember thinking like, part of me was kind of excited. <laughs> I was like, this is a wake up call to the world to start thinking about health. I was like, yeah. the whole world is going to know what allostatic load and hormetics are <laughs> you're very optimistic within the next six months like <laughs> it'll be on the news like someone will put it in mainstream media it'll be out there crickets people are going to start talking about sleep breathing walking like what ex- an opportunity exercise what an opportunity you know eucaloric eating or deficit eating you know what i mean like people are just going to start being healthy losing weight getting fit you know yeah. focusing on the importance of human connection and de-stress like all these different things yeah. And it just never like, yeah, it just didn't, it just didn't explode. And like, even it actually, did it even spark? Like, it's not like it. Yeah. Like this one, uh, you can't make people want to learn about health. This is the fundamental thing I realized. Like, it's almost like people, it sucks that we've gotten used to, you have to hit catastrophe to start caring about health. Yeah. And yeah. it's like this weird narrative that's propagated through medicine and it it, like even physio like i don't i was not trained to help people unless they had a disease or a broken part so and i think the assumption is that you cannot avoid the inevitable breakdown of your parts and that's like the shittiest most untrue story ever and yet that is the common story in any program to basically validate why you're paying all this money to learn the thing yeah and it's like that's part of it is this we have a culture devoid of health as a core value and we also live in a culture that is disease centric like literally everything's organized in a way that makes it really easy and likely to be diseased yeah this one person like i, I didn't look at a lot of the comments on uh, the thread you, you looked okay at, like i didn't I go said. that deep it just got really frustrating yeah because it got frustrating but one person wrote this jesse mcmay I often wish you would all stick to biomechanics. You have influence, but this is not your area of expertise. Save it for your personal page. So I read that and I was like, okay, interesting. Like that's her opinion. But what is, what is the foot collective page? Building health communities, collective sense making first principles approach to health. And that's, you know, started with the foundation, which is the foot. So I was like, okay, so the Foot Collective. To Nowhere me, on there does it say biomechanics, by the way. Right, <laughs> but the Foot Collective to me that that's what that's what I think of when I think of people who join the Foot Collective is people who think about health in a holistic manner, in a, in a system like a big system kind of approach. And I'm like, okay, well, I know that everyone who ascribes to the Foot Collective understands how something like the foot 
could cause like a poor foot could cause a headache. You know, in like the, the arch falls, internal rotation at the hip, you know, lordosis. Now you got the anterior head carriage and then the, the back, the neck muscles get tight and the person could be getting headaches. Like, like people understand that the chain from the ground all the way up. Right. So they understand the connections of the big picture, Hmm. but we're talking about health and you're talking about asking, you know, should we shut down the whole world, everything that we can do in order to save our health? In order to feel safe. In order to feel safe, right? But ultimately, the big picture is health. Yes. And when I look at this, I think of, imagine you sprained your ankle. I'm your doctor. And I said, lay in bed and don't move a friggin' muscle. Hmm. And you're like, but... But what if, like, couldn't I just kind of like go on with life, but not put weight on my foot? Like, if I get a wheelchair, some crutches, <laughs> I could still, I could still like sit, right? I could right. still sit at a desk and do work. It's like, no, don't move a thing. Yeah. Or else you'll make your, your, you'll, you will never be able to walk again if you keep putting weight on your foot. And you're going to burden everyone else because they're going to help you walk after. Yeah. <laughs> right. But <laughs> do it like, for others, Jay. Yeah. It's like <laughs> get in bed for others. <laughs> it's like, but, but the rest of me still works. Like right. I'm fine. And I actually think that yeah. the blood flow and the movement will actually help the ankle heal. Right. I think that laying in bed, I won't get any blood flow. I won't have an appetite. I'll be stressed out. I'll get depressed. My, my mental state will just go to crap. You know what I mean? And, and again, like, I won't be eating. I won't be drinking. I won't be turning my set like on a cellular level, all the great things that happen when you move and when you exercise, those things won't be happening. Right. And it's like, stay still. That's <laughs> yeah. literally what we're doing to the body of society. Yeah. That's a great analogy. So, As you're going through that, I was like, this is really yeah. good. And we're talking about the foot collective. Like <laughs> you stand on a beam and like, like that is going to make your hips great. Right. Like everyone understands that we don't have to go all the way up to the head, but you stand on a beam. Right. And that is going to make your hips great. Yeah. So people understand that they can connect the dots there, but they can't connect the dots in other places. Right. Right. But or they choose not to. Or they Convenient cho- not to connect dots. They, in yeah. Other or they choose not to. And like, like that, that whole, like, you know, like Miyamoto, Miyamoto Musashi's like from one thing, learn many is like always, it's something that I have ingrained in my head is whenever I learn something, I always apply it to something completely different. Right. Like, you know what I mean? So yeah, it's connecting dots that can seem very disparate, but like you can get, I get the most inspiration for like seemingly unrelated problems by just looking at like a tree growing. Yeah. And uh, you can get so much from it. If you just have the dots floating around, you can see this thing, like be inspired by someone else's work. Like I often tell people like my job is just to be inspired by other people's work and use that inspiration to connect dots that I haven't been able to connect. Yeah. And yeah, that's, I agree. Yeah. And, and I, I call that lateral thinking the majority, a lot of people, it's very easy to think vertically, mm-hmm. especially when you're spoon fed, what's, what's in between the top to bottom, what's right. from the heel, from the bottom of the foot, all the way up to the top of the head. Mm-hmm. It's easy to fill those in. That's vertically. Right. But can we take those same concepts and apply them somewhere else? That's, that's lateral agility. Right. right. That's like a football player juking and then jumping to the side. Yeah. It's right? a skill. It, it, it is. And, uh, and, th- and that's something that a lot of people should kind of always keep in mind. Anytime you learn anything, where else can this apply? And your, your agility increases the stronger your thirst for knowledge is because the more knowledge you have, the more dots you have to connect. Yep. I agree. 
Actually, I, I handpicked a really good salami comment. Um, so let's run with this. So the comment is, please have some empathy for the nurses and doctors that have to work overtime when people spread an illness that does in fact have a high infection rate and death rate compared to other illnesses. Let's just put a pin in that for one sec. So, oh my God, I don't even know where to start with this. First of all, that's not what the data says. Like, I think that needs to be said first. So the fact that this does, they say it does in fact have a high infection rate and death rate compared to other illnesses. Which other illnesses? Because like the death rate is like, like once again, wrench. It's like that person is on this whole Feynman quote of, of that we talked about before. It's like the dumber you are, the more confident you are and vice versa. It's like the smarter you are, the less confident you are in, in that, you know, everything. It's like, this is a prime example of that. And I do have embassy for docs and nurses. That's why I'm preaching health. Cause I think we have a health problem that's being sold as a COVID problem. And like, if we solve the health problem, there is no virus problem. Um, and lockdowns are a big reason why people are getting sick. Like this is another thing that I don't know if this person knows this or not, but um, yeah. Yeah. Ivor Cummins has put out tons of data. I don't know if you know who Ivor Cummins is. Yes. So he, he put out tons of data. He was where I got reasonableground.com. That's where I found okay. that. Okay. So, so he's put out so much cool stuff. And he's I think it was great. in like June or July, he put out a lot of stuff showing, showing like how mask, the ineffectiveness of mask mandates simply by showing in many places around Europe where the mask mandates were put in, you know, cases still went up. Right. Right. So negative proof, the, right. the power asymmetry of a negative proof that dist- that basically takes down single handedly a hypothesis. Yeah. And then he threw the big one in there, which has been confer- which he later confirmed again, using other, other countries was seasonality. He showed the seasonality of COVID, uh, how it acts according to temperate and tropical climates. So if you break up the U S by the States that are, um, tropical climates versus temperate climates, and you look at when the cases rise, COVID is identical to the flu. Hmm. And then we've heard another doctor, I can't remember his name right now, and he talked a little bit about viral interference. Because we look, we see that the flu has disappeared. Like it's completely disappeared. Yeah, how convenient is that? So there's two there's two things that could have happened. <laughs> That's, okay, okay. People, can we just think about this for one sec? How does the flu virus disappear? How does how did we solve the flu without any without any effort? Like that's a really big con- contradiction. Yeah. <laughs> and like and like logically, there's there's two potential answers to that, and both of them have doctors saying that it's possible. I don't know which one is more probable, but the point is, there's many doctors, and I've listened to two specifically who talk a lot about it, say that this is possible. So one talks about viral interference okay right like if you had the cold before you're not going to get the cold again Mm -hmm. or if virus a and virus b are 80 percent similar then once you've had virus a when you're introduced to virus b then your body has the script to right there's enough overlap in the immunity you have that it also acts with that that it won't be severe okay that's cool so so there's the viral interference angle which is you know COVID and the flu are competing and COVID wins. Okay. Right. So more people get COVID than the flu. So um, there's that kind of angle. And there's also the angle that a lot of the people who are getting tested positive for COVID are in fact having the flu. Right. And that was like Dr. Uh, Dolores Cahill and Corbett or Corbet. And they, they retested something like 1500 tests out of Boston and 
when they retested those tests, they all tested positive for either influenza A or influenza B. Mm. 100% of them was either one or the other. Interesting. Okay, so 100% of them tested positive for a flu virus, Mm. right? And we have to keep in mind the symptoms are the same. Right. Like even people, I don't think people realize that losing your sense of smell and taste, like that existed before COVID. Right, right. I've had that happen before. It's not like I've had the flu where I lost my sense of taste and I'm like, oh, it doesn't matter what I eat, right? And yet if you go in with influenza A and you have those symptoms, you get classified as COVID. Right. So, or they, they might not even test for it, but, right. and, and I've talked to doctors who say that they still test for influenza A in Canada. So they say that doesn't happen in Canada. Sure. Right. Whatever. But, but the point is those are two possibilities which are backed by expert opinions. Right. Right. We're not experts. We're just saying it, it's possible. Yep. Right. And then, and you take the seasonality into, into context, it's like, or into effect, like it's very possible that lockdowns and mandates don't work. The yeah. data is simply there. Like you said, Florida, Texas, Sweden. No one talks about Sweden. Tanzania. Like, Croatia. Right? And, and we have to also, like, cases. We are not talking about infections. There is a huge differentiation between cases and infections. Right. Like, Yeah, we didn't people, even dive into that assumption. But yeah. that's like a, a predecessor. Like, a, in order, there's like a hierarchy of salient the hierarchy of importance in terms of information and unless you know have some understanding of the grand context really you might not know that hierarchy where like some facts are really important and they they take much higher priority on the list of importance than like random facts so if you find a weak piece of evidence that supports your position in opposition to multiple strong pieces of evidence um, it's really easy to say like oh that's my that's my uh, sword. Like that's, that's it. I have the proof. And it's like, well, there's a hierarchy. Like there's an order with which the importance of information, like a negative proof hierarchically is way more important than any correlation evidence you might have. And it's like, I think that's important for people to know. I think fundamentally people just have a total illiteracy when it comes to science, like the scientific method and what, like, what is the process? I'm really excited to see this book you're coming out with. Cause it sounds like part of that framework for understanding truth is just like giving people a template for how to vet information. Yeah. It's a framework. It's, it's, yeah. It's a framework to self-awareness for the, like, it, I just want to talk about the test for another, another second because so cases do not equal infections. Okay. So that's a big thing. We know so what's a case and what's an infection. So a case would be a positive PCR test. Okay. And a, and an infection would be showing symptoms. Okay. 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 And like real symptoms, like severity, not like I have a headache. Gotcha. Because in the Pfizer studies, a headache, a headache and a slight cough could have meant you had COVID. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> so cases versus infections. Okay. The data shows that the more testing you do, the more cases you get. Okay. The more testing, the more cases. Right. The more cases you get does not correlate with more deaths. Gotcha. So case impacts and cases do not have a correlation. So when people say there's more cases right now in Ontario, that doesn't actually give you any meaningful information as to how bad this situation is. It doesn't mean we are in a worse situation. It simply means we did more tests, we have more cases, but it doesn't mean more people are feeling ill or more people are dying. And to differentiate those two is very important. Yeah, it is possible that COVID is actually far more severe or dangerous, fatal, than it is because there are far less actual real infections. Mm. 
because of so many false positives. I see. Like that, that's a possibility. Right. Right. But then, and, and neither is good or bad like that. If someone said COVID is way more severe, but it's far less contagious. It's like, Oh, cool. Right. Sure. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like either one, I'll deal with it. Yeah. But to say like viruses in the history of viruses do not remain severe and highly contagious at the same time because it, that would kill the hosts. Right. It would kill itself. Yeah. Their time. goal is to coexist with us. Right. It's not in their benefit, their evolutionary benefit to kill us off because then they have no vector to, to transmit them further. Right. Yeah. So, so that aspect of like looking at cases alone and not really judging case impacts is extremely important for us, especially when we're thinking about locking down and infringing on people's rights sort of thing. Mm. It's a very important thing to have. The PCR test is, oh, sorry. That's okay. The, the PCR test, like it has been shown by so many people now to be not a good uh, device or tool. Yeah, it's not a reliable or a valid tool to measure what we're claiming it measures. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the inventor of it. doesn't matter if you're talking about the inventor of the COVID PCR test. doesn't matter if you're talking to like Fauci or whoever and like, it blows my mind. Like we're talking about people who choose to be ignorant and consensus science and everything. I have a friend who's a doctor. Like he's a doctor and he's dealing with COVID patients in Canada who sometimes will have these great conversations and I'll feel like I'll learn some things, but then he'll say something about like PCR tests. And I'll just be like, how do you not like, how do you not know this about the PCR test? How, right. how can you validate? How can you agree with, you know, these case numbers when they have to do with, 38 cycle thresholds and and case impacts aren't like shown like we just said it doesn't travel in the same it doesn't correlate Mm -hmm. with cases right and this is a doctor and and i find that extremely frightening because that's obviously the kind of person that we look to for advice yeah and that's a very uh obvious red flag yeah i Yep. It's really frustrating. And it's in one of the things that I've found lately is like people say, well, we need to follow the evidence. I'm like, yes, we do. But we need to follow all evidence, not just the evidence you've arbitrarily selected as truth and the evidence you've arbitrarily selected as not truth. Right. Like this people that say we need to follow the evidence, but then selectively choose evidence that they want. Like there's a problem there. All evidence needs to be considered. Right, even the evidence that makes you uncomfortable or goes against your story. Maybe that's the most important shit because you're not paying attention to it. And it's like that's something that I just sense these days. Like, follow the evidence. Here's the evidence, or they say here's the evidence. It's like, well, what about all the other evidence? Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes like teach, and that's where like teaching people, having enough information that you can teach people is very important, or having enough information and propagating it in a way that entices that person to explore for themselves that's that sparks curiosity yes they want to they have to want to engage in the learning process you can't like jab facts down their throat and assume that they're just going to change their mind willfully it's like that's not how it works so so just i'm just going to get into it really quickly just so people listen listeners so agarwal a-g-g-a-r-w-a-l i believe that's a spelling he did he did a study back in either may or june on cycle thresholds. And what he found was that 24 cycle thresholds. What's a cycle threshold? So it's the amount of replications that the PCR test does. So picture like a photocopier. Mm -hmm. So you have one piece of paper, you put it in the photocopier, you do one cycle, it copies it once. So now you have two pieces of paper. 
Okay. After another cycle, it's two times doubled. So two times two, four. So that would be four cycle thresholds. There'll be two cycle thresholds. Two cycle thresholds. Okay, gotcha. Every every doubling is one cycle threshold. Gotcha. So it's like two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, sixty-four, one twenty-eight. I'm gonna stop there before I start okay. giving myself a headache. <laughs> okay. So so cycle thresholds. And by the time you get to like by the time you get above thirty-seven, I think it, you're in the, you're getting close to trillions. Okay. Right. And once you're at like twenty-four, it's maybe like hundred and sixteen million or something like that. So that's a big difference. Hundred and sixteen million versus a trillion. Yep. So at 24 copies or 24 cycles, the, if whatever the viral load is, like you took a Petri dish, whatever was in the Petri dish, cause don't forget they've never actually isolated the virus, but whatever is in the Petri dish dish replicates. Mm-hmm. Or if, if it's positive at 24, some of it can replicate over an eight day period. Okay. When they took at things that didn't get positive on 24 cycles, but they got positive on say 30 the viral load wasn't strong enough for it to replicate. Okay. Okay. So, so it wouldn't be strong enough for a person to get infected. Gotcha. Basically. The viral load is low. So that's what he found. Okay. So he found that basically anything above like a 24 person's probably going to be asymptomatic and isn't going to spread it basically, or gotcha. they don't have it. Gotcha. We have to remember, it's not looking for the virus. It's looking for pieces of virus. It's like looking right. for, it's like looking for hubcaps and saying the car is there. Right. And if you multiply it enough times, the hubcap gets really big. Yeah, so, they're just pieces of genetic material. Right, yeah, exactly. So so that that's what that's the Agarwal study. And there's another one, the Wadsworth. Uh, and the cycles is based on the volume of tests being administered. Is that correct? Volume of tests being administered. Like what is the, so, you know, we make a photocopy. What is the equivalent uh, with PCR testing? Is it the amount of tests you're doing that sensitizes it? Or is it, the preparation of the actual PCR and how many cycles you ran it through to get that? It's like choosing how long you put something in the microwave. And it's actually that simple on the machines. If you look at the videos on how okay. PCR tests work, so you can put it in there for one minute and it's cooked. So they're choosing the amount of cycles that they're creating a PCR test for. Yes. Okay. Yeah. The, like, like Ontario is set at around 38 or greater. So Ontario has been doing <laughs> 38 to 45. Okay. Right. And then say like Calgary might be like, which based on Agarwal essentially is a meaningless test. Right. Right. So like terms of microwaving stuff, it's like something says, put it in the microwave. You're Mr. Noodles, put it in there for a minute, 45 seconds. And you're like, ah, 10 minutes. (laughs) It's like, okay. So I don't know why all my noodles are getting burned. Yeah. So like that, so that, that, that's one. And that was back in like May and don't forget Kerry Mullis, you know what he said about it. He's the inventor of the PCR. Like he said, it's not a diagnostic tool, but there's another one that was done in July. <laughs> That's to, significant by the way. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's another one that was done in July by the Wadsworth, New York state laboratory. And what they did was they took a bunch of positive tests that were done at 40 cycle thresholds. It was like 954. Don't, uh, the numbers aren't exact, but it was like 950, 970. Okay. Um, positive tests at 40 cycle thresholds. Then they dropped it to 35 and that number dropped to like 500 something. Okay. So, so you went from 40 to 35 and you went from almost a thousand to 500. So you have the amount of quote unquote yeah. positive tests by going down five units in cycle thresholds. Yeah. It dropped, it dropped to 50%. Okay. And then they dropped it to 30, 30 cycle thresholds and it dropped to like 30%. Hmm. So that means 70% at 40 were false positives. 
And those would get reported as an increase in cases. Yes. And that gets reported as an increase. See, I was, because I looked into PCRs initially, but I hadn't really kept up with it. But I knew in my head from what I had looked into that tests are highly, are super sensitized to the point where you can have a positive test despite not actually feeling any symptoms or having this thing. Yeah. And so when I had to, when I was told that I had to get a test, a negative test done in Costa Rica and that I would have to get another test done in Canada, I had a significant concern that I would get a negative test in Costa Rica and I would have a positive test here. And it wasn't, I was trying to think of like, why am I thinking that? Why am I worried about that? But it was because of the initial kind of stuff that I had looked into being like, well, obviously we're going to detect this. We're going to detect positive cases, quote unquote, way more if we're misusing this test. Yeah. And we know how we're supposed to be using it. Yeah. And this, this should probably, I might ask you for a clip of this because I've been meaning to like talk about this on sure. some kind of media. But I, so sensitivity, sensitivity goes up with cycle thresholds. Okay. Okay. So the more cycle thresholds you do, the more sensitive it is. Just like I said, a hubcap, if you keep blowing it up more and more and more, it gets bigger and bigger. It's easier to see. Right. So your ability to see it, the sensitivity of your sight. Increases. Out of proportion, easier to see. Yes. Yes. Right. You shouldn't be able to see a hubcap from a mile away. Right. But if you so, blow it up enough, you will. Yeah, and sensitivity is your ability to correctly diagnose a positive infection. Okay. Okay, so if you have a 90% sensitivity and 100 people who are infected get tested, only 90 of them will be told they are positive. Okay. 10 of them will, will be false negatives. They will be told they are not infected when indeed they are negative. Okay. Or sorry, when indeed they are infected. They are infected. So obviously from like, like a, a medical health, you know, societal health component, we don't want to miss any negatives right? or any pause, any infections. You don't want to mess. You don't want to tell someone that they don't have an infection when they in fact do. Right. You want to make sure you get it right. Right. So in that sense, it makes sure to have a very mm -hmm. high sensitivity. Yes. Right. So that is sensitivity. And Agarwal put sensitivity at 97% at, at 24 cycle thresholds. Which is pretty good. Right? Which is really high. But sensitivity and specificity have an inverse relationship. Specificity is dealing with people who are not infected. So if you have 100 people who are not infected, okay, and there's a 90% specificity, then 90 of the people will be told that they are not infected, and 10 of the people will be told they are infected. Who, in fact, aren't. False positives. Okay. Right? So I'm going to repeat that. Specificity... So if you have 95% specificity, then that means 5% of the non-infected people will be told that they are false positives. Okay. Okay. Now, sensitivity and specificity have an inverse relationship. The more you ramp up sensitivity to make sure you don't miss anyone, because it is more sensitive, you're blowing up hubcaps, you're blowing up screws, you're, everything, you are more likely to get more false positives. Right. Right? So the higher and higher and higher we get with specificity or or with sensitivity, the lower and lower and lower we get with specificity. So the higher the cycle thresholds, the more likely you are to get false positives. Right. And around 30 cycle thresholds is certainly going to be around 100 sensitivity. Hmm. So everything above that is almost unnecessary. So what happens is they say, well, let's play it safe. Let's take it to 33 well, or 35 or 38 or 45. And not all labs are the same. Like 
a lab doing 33 might be more equivalent to another lab doing 34. Right. Like not all microwaves are the same, you know, not all Xerox machines are exactly the same, but so that is the idea behind how false positives happen. So that is why the higher the cycle threshold, the more copies are floating out there, the more likely you are to misidentify something mm. as, you know, misidentify any genetic material. And that's why Carrie Mullet says, like he specifically says, if you blow something up enough, you'll find anything. Sure. Like literally you'll find anything. You'll test positive for anything. And yeah, like find a point. random, find a seashell on a random island in the Pacific. If you do enough cycle thresholds, it's probably going to test positive too. Yeah. Right. It's like, and it, and then the test ends up becoming meaningless um, unless you want it to appear as if a lot of people have something who don't. Uh, it, right? Like when has there ever existed a disease that you needed to get a test to know you have it? Like, and have zero symptoms or like you're completely fine. It's very weird. Right. And we attach the idea of, you know, like these, these self-righteous people telling you that you're being reckless because you could be infected when you're asymptomatic, right? Mm. It's like, well, I'm going to tell you something. On average, according to the CDC, 517 children die a year from the flu. Okay. Okay. That's, look it up, folks. 517 might be 516. I could be wrong. Okay. But 517 children on average per year die of the flu. Okay. In the United States or something like, or sorry, in Canada right now, I think it was 36 kids had died. Okay. can't remember. Okay. There's too many stats to remember. I don't right. Remember. <laughs> right. Either Canada or the U.S., like something. And that was under the, the flu. The flu one was uh, the, under the age of 17. Okay. And I think, I think it was the U.S. In the U.S., under the age of 15, 36 children have died of COVID involving. Right. Okay. So, so compare those two. That's, that's a big difference. Right. Now, the flu is 75% asymptomatic. You can look that up. That's also on the CDC. Hmm. So 75% of the people who are infected with the flu are asymptomatic. Interesting. How many children have you killed? Over the last decade, how many children have you killed? None. <laughs> I don't know. If, if, <laughs> if we're using the same standard, if we're not double thinking, and we're gonna, if we're going to choose to keep the exact same premise for... COVID as we, and we apply that to the flu. Okay. You're a murderer for spreading COVID. Well, you're a murderer. How many kids have you killed? That's the premise folks. That is being consistent with your, your ideas. Yeah. See, I need to, I, I, I think I lost you halfway there. So let's do that again. So 500 kids. Okay. So the people who don't wear masks are called murderers. Okay. Right. Yeah. But I don't take that seriously. Like that's, I know, that, but, that's so nonsensical, but but there, there are people who say that. Right, sure. There are people who say you're Those being... people are mentally problemed. You're being reckless. You don't care about other people. Because the whole reason, like, let's not forget the entire reason for wearing a mask is to protect other people. Right, right? allegedly. The, like, the science doesn't show it protects you. Right. It's, the whole point is to protect other people. So that is the whole reason why everyone is masking up, is to protect other people. It's some altruistic idea, right? Sure. So... If we are going to call people who are potentially infecting other people murderers, meaning when you infect people, you can kill them even when you're asymptomatic. Right. We look at the flu, okay? Because right now it's kill grandma, mm -hmm. right? That's like, oh, you're going to kill grandma, right? right. That's what they've fear-mongered people into thinking that they're killing their own, their own grandparents. But if I just told you that, you know, something like, well, what is that? I don't, I don't even know what that is. Almost 20 times, like 18 times. 18 times more kids die from the flu than have died for, from COVID. Right. Right. 
So if I tell you that you're spreading the flu around by not wearing a mask with the flu, you've killed till yeah, right. So we, we were wearing according to the equal logic. Yeah. So we haven't been wearing a mask like, right. You know, like this year we wore a mask, but what about the last decade? So it is possible that you have killed children and not known it. Like that is how we are thinking right now. Yeah. It's really, I mean, everything is so skewed these days. Like everything, like it's almost like people know the, the, the wires to like jab at, like the triggers to get people to like say these crazy things that they might not even be able to process or have context for that really is like, yeah, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't hurt other people. I agree. We shouldn't hurt other people, but are we actually like, the problem is that they don't draw the line back to like, where is that? Where is the foundation for that statement? Right. It's like, if you don't wear a mask, you're hurting other people. We shouldn't. Do you agree that we shouldn't hurt other people? Yes. Then you need to wear a mask because if you don't, you're hurting other people. And no one says, how so? Like no one asks that, that other question that is the most important one to validate that assumption, which is like a steep assumption. Um, and if you don't ask a question, you just do it because it's more convenient to do the thing that someone told you to do than to ask a question about if that's even accurate or not. That's like, that's the trouble right now. If you don't ask the questions, you just accept assumptions. And, you know, the second, third, and fourth order effects of doing something that is being told to you as being good can actually be way more worse than the good you're claiming to do. Right. And that's because we're framing it in like a single variant way. Yeah. Right? It's like, like black and white. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's black and white and it's either mask or no mask. And that's the thing. Yeah. Right. And it's, you get COVID, you die. It's like, no, like the survival rates are fairly high and there's a lot more ideas that like even if we just if people educate themselves on the concept of viral load that changes a lot of things but there's it's multivariate right the problem is multivariate and we can't ever find a proper solution if we don't dissect the problem identify the problem properly and the solution like it is very scary that we can think about locking down a country and not really explore the consequences of that yeah like, like it is being explored now and doctors are finally saying it, but doctors were saying it in March of 2020. Doctors were saying that yeah. lockdown is a bad thing and they were, they were silenced, right? And next thing you know, everyone who says like freedom is good is a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. So I think the, like this whole thing was stimulated by that post that said that, you know, like how much of your freedom are you willing to sacrifice to, to be safe or to be you know, what people are saying is safe. Um, and I think the moral of the story is that like, if you actually look objectively at, at what we've learned since we started this, lockdowns are not a way to help the, the like humanity. Like they do not have the, the outcome that we're claiming they do. And if you actually look into, and, and I mean, the bigger take home is like, look into things, like do a little bit of inquiry, like have a conversation with someone you disagree with just to like with an open mind, hear them out, um, you know, and don't put, don't put wrenches in the sense-making machine. Like don't spit bullshit out there with zero like confidence in the fact that that is real information. Like what you hear from the news is probably not the most valid thing to throw into a discussion on social media, claiming that that's the truth. That might be your truth right now, which is okay, but it's like, you need to, there's a higher standard. There should be a higher standard because if there isn't, then we're all just going to continue being confused. Um, yeah. And I appreciate the conversation because the whole thing that you kicked off with, I think is a very interesting distinction between people who, um, don't have knowledge currently don't have a, 
you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. And just like not knowing that is not a bad thing, but choosing not to know once it's been put in front of you or put inside your, um, your informational environment um, is a whole different story. And then you're literally becoming a sabotager of truth. Don't be that. Saboteur. Saboteur. There's a lot of saboteurs. So tell people about when this book is coming out and where, because Jay's got some really great stuff on social media. Like you're, um, you're a truth crusader. Like I'm, uh, your endurance in this game, in this race um, over the past year has been very impressive and like very inspiring. I mean, I don't, I don't keep up with it in terms of posting stuff um, about COVID or about, you know, like, because I, I just, you know, TFC social media platforms gotten a little bit more cumbersome than what just I feel. Um, but I really respect that you're continuing to do that. So you're at J. Oh, and by the way, when I tried to tag you and search you, like tag you in the post I did today saying you were coming here, I couldn't find you. you I had to, to, you I had to, to type to, in your entire thing. Yeah, you have to type the entire thing. That's, that was weird. That's the first time it's ever happened. That's what the sh- that's what a shadow ban looks like. Yeah, so. Like, uh, like I can't get more than 1,100 views on my stories. Because mm, they just cut it off. It just stops. Yeah. yeah I used See, to get, that's I used so to get around, bothersome. Yeah, and I used to get, like, I used to get around, like, you know, on a low day, 1,700, on a high day, 3,000. Mm-hmm. And now it's just, like, 1,100 seems to be the cap. Yeah. Yeah, so I just have to make sure every now and then I post jokes and... <laughs> You know what I mean? Whenever yeah. I see it. Post lights out once in a while. Yeah. Have you ever seen me like working out or something? It's like, I'm literally just trying to recalibrate it. <laughs> literally all I'm doing is just playing with the algorithm. Nice. And then, so if people want to find you, Janeasy2100 on Instagram, and then uh, any release date or, or estimation for that, the book. And what's the book called? The one that you're uh, doing right now? So the book is called Determination of Truth. Okay. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking it's still going to be a while, maybe June. Okay, cool. June release would be good. Uh, June, July. We'll so keep a, people we'll updated and maybe like right before that we can do another podcast and I'll just like uh, ask you questions about it. Oh, there's there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's it's And I'll just say quickly, it's a framework for finding the truth, which I talked a very little bit about with information processing and the pseudo environment. There's a couple other components or another component and how they all work together, their relationship. And then there's also psychological and social engineering considerations, which is the, the primary part of the book. So cool. we talk about a lot of psychological studies, a lot of stuff to do with thought reform and brainwashing and obedience to authority and conformity um, because self-awareness of the tools and how we can be manipulated is probably one of the most important things. Yeah, it's self-defense. Right it's like we don't have self-defense from manipulation. Right. And if we had it, we would be a lot better prepared for this environment. Right. And right now we have algorithms working against us. Yeah, that, right. There's that, a lot of wrenches. Yeah that the majority of us don't know are working against us. So. Yeah. And don't be a salami. Yeah. <laughs> don't be a salami. Anyway, no thank, salamis or onions. No salamis or onions. Anyway, thanks for listening, folks. Hopefully that was valuable. Feel free to leave comments on YouTube. Uh, we'll fire this on the Audio Project podcast in a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll catch you later. Ciao.